Now, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. As we've been going through the minor prophets, it's been some time ago now that we went through the whole book of Micah. And so I've preached this passage before here in this very place. But my goal tonight won't be uh, necessarily to to do a a full exposition of this passage. We attempted to do that last time as we were going through Micah. Now we want to revisit these verses and look at them from a a more specifically, uh, I guess, Christmas perspective, nativity perspective. Consider what they say about our Savior Jesus and his birth in the little town of Bethlehem. So our text tonight will be Micah chapter 5 beginning in verse 2 and reading through to the first little sentence there in verse 5. And let's give careful attention to this now because it is the very word of God. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray now and ask him to bless it to us. Father, we ask once more that, uh, that you would bless the word to us, that you'd give us understanding, that you'd open our hearts and grant that tonight the word would go forth, not in word only, but also in power to strengthen your people and to draw all of your elect to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, this morning, uh, once again, Pastor Mark encouraged us to be welcoming to, uh, to visitors to, to guests, and, and you are, and, and, we, and both he and I are very thankful that you are a very welcoming and friendly congregation, but you know, it's always an encouragement uh, to, uh, or we always seek to, make, to encourage you to do that, uh, just to encourage you to abound all the more uh, in that ministry of reaching out to, to visitors, and you know, suppose if you, if you talked with someone uh, who's new to the church and in conversation, you ask them where they're from, and if they were to say, oh, I'm, I'm from Paris, you might be pretty impressed. In your mind, you might be thinking, wow, Paris, Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, the Louvre, uh, and thinking how neat it is that they're from there. And then they say, well, uh, they, they didn't tell you, oh, I meant uh, Paris, Idaho. Uh, that's that, it's a big difference, right? Uh, now, or, or to to put it in in more local context, if someone shows up at First Scots of Beaufort, and you ask them where are you from, and they say oh, I'm from Greenville, you're 
probably going to assume immediately they mean Greenville, South Carolina. And you say, oh, I love Greenville. You know what they've done to the downtown is just really great, that park and the waterfalls. And, and they say, no, 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 I'm from Greenville, Florida, population 543. You know, but don't make fun of my little town of Greenville, Florida, because it's the, it was the childhood home, childhood home of Ray Charles. That's our claim to fame. Ray Charles grew up there. See, there are uh, about two dozen states in the United States that have a town called Greenville. And there were at least two towns in ancient Israel that had the name Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah, of which we read in the text tonight, and there was a Bethlehem way up north, too, in the land of Naphtali. And so when the prophet through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes this proclamation of one who's going to come forth and rule Israel. He specifies Bethlehem Ephrathah, lest you think it was Bethlehem and Naphtali. Now, the historical context here is that uh, Israel and, and, and Judah are not in exile yet. In fact, I think when, uh, when Micah made this prophecy, neither of them was, was yet in exile, but exile was coming because the Assyrians were coming and they were going to steamroll the northern kingdom of Israel and, ta- and carry it away into exile. They would even work their way into Judah, the southern kingdom, and to the very gates of Jerusalem. And you might remember that story of how the armies of Assyria were besieging Jerusalem and the general of the Assyrian army was taunting the people of God, talking smack, we might say, to the people of Judah. Well, that hasn't happened just yet. Israel hasn't even fallen. The southern kingdom hasn't fallen yet. But they were already in the process of undergoing oppression from foreign invaders undergoing degradation. Their numbers and their national might were dwindling. And even though they weren't yet captive to Assyria, they were already captive to idolatry, captive to sin. And that's where we find God's covenant people when these words came to the prophet Micah. And as I say, I want to make a specifically uh, Advent slash Christmas focus on this text tonight. And, and looking at it from that perspective, we find from this text that the coming of Christ teaches us things about God's character and things about his power. The three things I want to draw out of the text tonight is first, God uses weak things. I'm going to say he loves to use weak things. Secondly, God is patient in bringing about his ends. We're not, especially when there's anything uh, selfish involved there. We want to see progress. We want to see answers. We want to see success. Uh, But God's oftentimes not nearly in as big a hurry as we are. He's patient in bringing about his ends. And then finally, 
this text teaches us that the Messiah will be a shepherd king. So first of all, let's consider that God uses weak things. The text, again, is familiar, and you see the name Bethlehem appear here, and we sing a hymn uh, from our hymnal, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and that's worded quite appropriately because it was little. Bethlehem was a small place. The text says, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. What that means is they didn't rank in the top cities of Judah. And all you have to do to, to, to see proof of that is to go back to Joshua chapter 15, and they're listing all the fortified cities in the various territories of Israel and all the different tribes. And in the tribe of Judah, there are 46 fortified cities mentioned. And Bethlehem isn't even on the list. Just to give you an idea how minuscule and insignificant this place was, Bethlehem didn't make the list. It was small. And yet it was known as the city of David because Israel's greatest king came from Bethlehem. Or we could say their second greatest king because the son of David, the king of kings, would also come from Bethlehem. And you note how specific the text is. And the, the scribes of the Pharisees, just like Pastor Mark mentioned this morning, they knew the scriptures, they knew the prophecies of Micah, the, these scribes living in the days of Jesus. And so when Herod came and said, where is this king going to be born? They knew right away. They didn't have to think about it too hard. Well, it'll be in Bethlehem. So it was written in the prophets. They could cite it. And yes, they did know the scriptures. They were, they were, they were uh, the, the scribes and the chief priests. They were careful students of the scriptures, so they knew what the Old Testament prophecies said about the birth of, of the Messiah. But they weren't the only ones who knew. I mean, the common people knew this. We find that out in John's gospel. You know, as Jesus' ministry is gaining popularity and controversy begins to swirl around him and people are starting to say, hey, maybe this is the Christ. And others are saying, no, it can't be. Well, in John chapter 7, as the people argue amongst themselves about who Jesus is and whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, in John 7 verse 42 some of the people are saying something along the lines of, <clears throat> has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? See, they knew what the scripture said. They fell into a pitfall that many people fall into today, though, and they made false assumptions. Their logic was, scripture says the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, and we know this fellow comes from Nazareth. They didn't think to ask, by the way, Jesus, you didn't happen to have been born in Bethlehem, did you? They didn't care. They thought they had it all figured out. He was from Nazareth. He can't be the Christ. The Christ comes from Bethlehem. But how often do we do the same kind of thing? The people knew. The people knew Bethlehem would be the place of the birth of their Messiah. 
So the Messiah, the promised one that they'd been waiting for all this time, wasn't born in Jerusalem, the fortress city, the capital city of Israel. He's born in this little insignificant village because God uses weak things. And there are many, many examples in Scripture, many other kinds of examples that illustrate this very fact that God uses weak things. He uses insignificant, unimportant people. Do you take any comfort in that? That God loves to use nobodies to work about his, to work out his purposes and to do great things. Think about a guy like Gideon. When the angel came to Gideon and started to explain to Gideon that God was going to use him to judge his people and to deliver, to deliver his people, Gideon's response is, how can I be used? I'm the least in my father's house. He was the youngest of his father's sons. And His clan was the weakest in his whole tribe. How could God use me, Gideon thought? Why would God use me? Well, it's because God uses weak things. He uses insignificant people, like Saul. Same thing with Saul. Saul came from the smallest tribe, tribe of Benjamin, a a tribe that nearly got completely snuffed out in the history of Israel. A little tiny, weak, insignificant tribe. And when Samuel came to anoint Saul to be king of Israel, Saul had a response similar to Gideon's. How can this be? I come from the smallest tribe, and my father's clan is the weakest, smallest clan in our whole tribe. Or in the New Testament, think about the disciples. Jesus didn't go out and recruit all the smartest, wisest, most prominent rabbis as he started appointing his apostles. He chose uneducated people. He chose fishermen, people of no account. And that's the way God works. He uses weak things. He uses insignificant, unimportant people. He uses human weakness And the more you see this, the more it strikes you that God loves to do this. Human weakness and His work through human weakness. Like how many times has some really important person in Scripture been born to a woman who previously was barren, who had probably given up hope of ever being able to have children? Sarah, whose husband was going to be the father of a multitude, What a joke. What a mockery that must have seemed like to her because she'd never been able to have children. God used her. And through her, Isaac was born. Oh, and then Isaac's wife was barren. Couldn't have children. Or so she thought. And Isaac prayed to God for his wife and God heard and he remembered Rebekah and Rebekah brought forth Jacob and Esau. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the prophet, same thing. No children, but God worked through her. Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. God just seems to love to use barren women to bring important people into the world. 
or small numbers. You think of Gideon, and he's facing the, the hordes of the Midianites. They were so numerous, it's like they covered the ground like locusts. And God raises up Gideon and says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And Gideon only had 30,000 or so men. And that was a tiny fraction of what the Midianites had. But God says, I'm going to raise up some more people for you, Gideon. Don't worry. Right? No. He says, Gideon, those soldiers you've got, those soldiers that are just a fraction of the army that you're about to face, they're, they're too many. So I want you to send a bunch of them home. And he did. In fact, he, he, he reduced Gideon's force to about 1% of his starting uh, manpower. And through those 300, God delivered Israel. God loves to do that. Or you take a guy like Paul, the apostle. He's doing great things. But God weakens him by sending this thorn in the flesh. And in every case, using his barren women, using small numbers, telling Paul when he prayed about the thorn in the flesh, my grace is sufficient for you. The whole, in every case, the reason was the same. So that God would get glory by using weak things. That's what he does. He even uses to this very day, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, in church after church all over the world, he uses weak things, weak means to get glory for himself. And what I mean by that is the preaching of the word. That's what he chooses. Because Jesus commanded that his disciples go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that he had commanded, right? And anyone who's studied education can tell you that the most ineffective, the weakest means of communicating information and of teaching is just simple, bare lecture. You know, if you really want to be an effective communicator, if you really want to be an effective teacher, you've got to bring in other things. You've got to use visual aids, and you've got to use tactile things. That's what educators will tell you. And there's, you know, humanly speaking, scientifically speaking, they're right. Preaching is weak. But God chooses to use it so that he gets the power. He uses it to convert sinners. He uses preaching to sanctify his people. Why? Why weak things? So that God alone receives the glory. That's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 1 when he said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We don't boast in our ideas or our methods or our creativity. We can't. Because what God has said to us in order to advance His kingdom, in order to feed His flock, in order to build the church, is to do this really weak thing. Preach. I think of Naaman, the Syrian general, the great war hero, hero, but he had leprosy, and he'd heard that there was a prophet in Israel. So he went down 
And he goes to Elisha, and Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan seven times, and you'll be clean. And Naaman was perturbed. He said, I thought he'd make me do something, some great thing. But then finally his servant said, if he'd asked you to do something great, would you have done it? How much more if he just says, wash in the Jordan and be clean? God uses weak things to show his power. He uses weak things like me, weak things like you, weak things like a baby in a manger. Secondly, God is patient in bringing about his ends. Look at verse 3 with me in our text again, because it says there that before this promised ruler comes, this one who's going to be born, who's going to come out of Bethlehem, before he comes, the nation will be given up. <clears throat> and that happened. Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, went into Assyrian captivity in 721 B.C. Judah went into captivity in Babylon in 586, because in that intervening time, the Assyrian Empire had fallen, had fallen to Babylon. Babylon was now in the process of taking over the world, and they came and invaded Judah and destroyed Judah and carried the people away. And then, yes, the people came back from exile. They, re they were able to return to the land. But even then, they were under subjugation to the Persian Empire, which fell. And then they remained in sub subjection because then they were subject to the Greek Empire. And after that, various vestiges of it. By the time the Lord Jesus was born and this prophecy was fulfilled, the Jews were uh, under Roman occupation, an occupation and uh, subjection from which they were never liberated. But God was biding his time, you see. He was waiting. He was patient in bringing about his ends. We're told in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that the Messiah, Christ, was born in the fullness of time. The fullness of time. There were people living during the captivity in Assyria, living during the captivity in Babylon, living during the post-exilic period when they're back in the land but under Persia, who are yearning for the Messiah to come. Their prayer was like that song we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. But they lived and died, and he didn't come. Yet. And we all have to wait for things. Every one of us has to wait. You kids, you wait for things, right? You're waiting for something right now, aren't you? You're waiting for Christmas morning when you can open those presents. Kids have to wait for Christmas, they have to wait for their birthday, they have to wait for summer vacation wait for school to get out. We're always waiting for things, aren't we? Well, the Jews had been waiting for their Messiah for centuries. Waiting. And in wisdom and in love, God had determined exactly when the Christ would come. 
Now, Christ's work is always governed by holy, divine patience. His work of salvation. It happens according to His plan, according to His timing. The work of sanctification. When we're wishing we could be more holy, be more like Jesus. But that work of sanctification happens slowly, sometimes. God is patient in the salvation of the elect. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What He's talking about there is the people in, that, to whom Peter was writing were like, where's the promise of His coming? We are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. When is He going to come? And Peter's saying, God is patient toward you. Because you can't see it. You don't know who. But all around you, God has his elect. And he's not going to come back until they've all been brought in. I came across this statement in one of the writings of uh, Thomas Watson. He was answering the question, when is the judgment going to be? When is Christ going to return uh, with glory to judge the living and the dead? And Thomas Watson said, As he that rows a ferry boat stays till all the passengers are taken in, and then he rows away, so Christ stays in glory, that is. He stays in heaven with the Father. Christ stays till all the elect are gathered in. And then he will hasten to judgment. Not till all of us are in the ark will the flood come. So God's patient in salvation. Patient in salvation. He's also patient in our sanctification. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 28. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. Have you ever noticed how many agricultural illustrations the Lord Jesus uses when he talks about his kingdom? Parable of the sower. Parable of the wheat and the tares. He uses these agricultural descriptions because it takes time for things to grow. And he's saying, my kingdom is going to be like that. You want it all like this. But that's not how it comes. Christ's half-brother James, in his letter, kind of put it this way. He said, and he says, this is the Holy Spirit talking to you and to me too, right? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. God is patient in bringing about his ends. And that's why, back in our text in Micah, it says he's, God is willing to give, give the people up for a time. The one from Bethlehem will come in time. But first, God's people must endure hardship. 
We have, to be wait, we have to be willing to wait God's timing. We have to be willing to trust God's timing. We must be content to wait patiently for him. You know, patience is a divine attribute. God says so. He's long-suffering. He's forbearing. But not only is patience a divine attribute, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a communicable attribute, meaning that it's an attribute of God that we can share, and He's working that in us. God ordains and uses our circumstances to form godly character in us, including and perhaps especially patience. One uh, caveat about that, though. Don't interpret the call to be patient as a permit for laziness in your walk or in your spiritual labors. Let me say that again. Don't interpret the call to patience as a permit for laziness. God calls us to patience, but not to carelessness. And don't interpret God's preference for weak things as his indulgence of our neglect. Hmm? God delights in weak things, but he takes no delight in slack things. And so he teaches us in his word, work with all your might, Ecclesiastes 9.10. Everything that you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, Colossians 3.23. But keeping those things in mind, remember that God uses weak things and he's patient at bringing about his ends. But then finally, the text that we're looking at tonight teaches us that the Messiah, the promised one, will be a shepherd king. And you see kind of a turnabout in a way here because David was the shepherd who went on to become a king. Jesus is the king of kings and he stoops to become a shepherd. This text teaches us some things about him. It teaches us that he's a divine person. Take it in aggregate with the rest of Scripture's testimony. We see in Micah 5 that this this one who's going to come out of Bethlehem, his existence was from eternity. Did you see that? Verse 2, it says, this one coming out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, his, his coming forth is from old, from of old. His coming forth is from ancient days. And you know, there are various, a couple of different ways in the Hebrew language to express um, eternity, but the very, most, the very most, the very strongest possible Hebrew terminology to express eternity is used here. It's the same Hebrew phrase, the same Hebrew expression that's used in Psalm 90, verse 2, where the psalmist says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so in Micah here, it's saying this one who's going to come out of Bethlehem, his going forth is from everlasting. That's one of those things that had to have made the people scratch their heads and think, well, how can this be? It also says he's going to stand, verse 4. That speaks of stability. It speaks of firmness. It speaks of strength. And it says he will tend, or I depending on the translation you're, you're reading, the, the version that you're looking at, he will shepherd his people. In other words, he's going to watch over them. 
He's going to guide them. He's going to preserve them. We see that in Christ, and he saw that as his identity. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And notice what it says about the source and authority of his rule. It says he's going to rule in the strength of the Lord. Not ordinary strength, not human might, not even the kind of extraordinary human might, for instance, that Samson had. He's going to rule in the strength of the Lord. His authority is divine and it's majestic. This passage, I think, has some pretty strong hints uh, at the doctrines of the Trinity and of the Incarnation. Because you've got this one who's going forth is from of old, and he's got divine strength, but he serves in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Doesn't that kind of speak Trinity to you? It does to me. Persons within the Godhead and of the incarnation, this coming forth is from of old. And yet he was going to be born and come out of Bethlehem. So much richness here if we, if we just dig into it a little bit. <clears throat> and maybe the most remarkable thing about Jesus and his teaching, once we get to the New Testament, is the way he taught and the way he proclaimed the truths of God. Because in the Old Testament, what did the prophets always say? They would stand up and when they're going to get ready to be the herald of Yahweh, they would say, thus says the Lord. Look in your Bibles and see if anywhere in the Gospels Jesus ever said, thus says the Lord. All the prophets said it. But when Jesus, that great prophet like unto Moses, came, the one to whom the people were to listen. He didn't say, thus says the Lord. He said, I say unto you. He always treated the Scriptures with tremendous respect, and he would argue from the Scriptures, and he would affirm their authority. But he never said, thus says the Lord. He said, but I say unto you. Because he had divine authority that was inherent to him. It rested within him. And he's our shepherd. And our shepherd is a king. Our shepherd is the king of kings. And as that passage that we read a moment ago closes out, he is our peace. Because through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Peace with one another as he's brought us into one family, one house. You know, people were looking in Jesus' day and really throughout the history of Israel, they were looking for someone to give them peace from Assyria, someone to give them peace from Babylon, someone to give them peace from the Persians or the, or the Medes or the Greeks, peace from Rome. Well, that's not the peace that he came to give. He came to give peace with God. And so, 
The coming of Christ teaches us about God's character and power. And this text is an illustration for us of God's great power. It shows his power in the ways that the world doesn't expect. It shows his power by the fact that he doesn't use things that we consider strong. Instead, he uses things we consider weak to do powerful things. And here we also see God's patient. And he's far more patient than we are, isn't he? Too often we're in a hurry, especially when it comes to selfish things, things that we really want. We want it now. But God has wise reasons for making us wait. But then finally, we see in this text our Savior Jesus. King David was born in Bethlehem. And so was the son of David, the king of kings. And this Christmas story then, that we are remembering again at this time of year, it shows us that God keeps his promises. It shows us that God always fulfills his word. Has he said and will he not do it? If he speaks, he'll always do it. He always fulfills his word. And so you and I can be confident of his faithfulness to us. He'll be faithful and he'll continue to keep his promises because in Christ all the promises of God are yea and amen. Christ was born in weakness. Christ died in weakness. But he's raised in power and glory so that he could become our peace. Well, as we're coming to the table now tonight. We're reminded that the path from Bethlehem to our peace led directly to the cross. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he did that by laying down his life for sinners. You know what the name Bethlehem means, right? The name Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means house of bread. Jesus is the bread of life that came down from heaven. So that his body could be broken for you. So that his blood could be poured out for you. And that's what we come to remember in this sacrament. And so as we come, let's take our hymnals and we're going to sing stanzas one through three of number 426 and leave your hymnal open there because we'll sing the fourth stanza after we celebrate the supper 426 till he comes